The date? October 16, 1943. The place? Munda Airstrip on the island of New Georgia in the western province of the Solomon Islands. Twelve U.S. Marine pilots take off in their F-4U Corsair aircraft heading for Bougainville. The mission? To escort a group of B-24 Liberator bombers to the island of Bougainville. The next step in the Americans' march up the Solomon Islands. The mission had barely begun when the weather turned nasty. The squadron commander kept a close eye on his pilots as they navigated the weather. Soon, some tough decisions would need to be made. You're listening to Celery City Stories, the podcast that explores the incredible history of Sanford, Florida they didn't teach you in school. I'm your host, Dan Ping. What happens when a tough decision needs to be made? Do you follow along with everyone else? Or do you go your own way? This is a story about tough decisions. The 12 Marine pilots and the bombers searched for a way around the weather. They tried to fly high over the storm. No luck. They tried to fly around it. Same result. The fighter pilots watched as the bombers disappeared into a giant bank of clouds. It was too dangerous to follow them. The mission was scrubbed. The squadron commander ordered his pilots to pull into tight formation and follow him back to the base. Instead of turning 180 degrees and retracing the route they had already taken, the commander led them on a circuitous route through the clouds. What the heck is Grandpappy doing? Jack thought to himself. The pilots called the commander Grandpappy. Not to his face, of course. Grandpappy had a wicked bad temper. He liked to fight, too. None of the pilots dared to ignite his explosive anger. They called him Skipper to his face. Besides, at 30 years old, the Skipper was not that old. On the other hand, many of the pilots were barely 20. None were older than 22. The nickname aside, The young pilots knew their skipper was one of the best when it came to aerial warfare. The Japanese pilots and their Mitsubishi-made Zeros were no match for the skipper's aggressive tactics, which the young Marines had perfected. Perhaps none more so than Jack, an enthusiastic 22-year-old. Jack grew up in Sanford, Florida. He joined the Navy six months before Pearl Harbor because his family couldn't afford college tuition for both he and his younger brother. He signed up to be a pilot, even though he had never even been on an airplane, but he took to it like a duck to water. While other students were attempting to master the horizontal figure eights, Jack tried to pull off a loop-de-loop on only his second solo flight. By August of 1942, Jack had earned his wings and was commissioned as a second lieutenant in the Marine Corps. He spent six months as a flight instructor before relocating to the South Pacific. By August of 43, he was assigned to Grandpappy's squadron. Jack knew Grandpappy was a skilled pilot, 
but he questioned the winding route he was taking back to the base. The nasty weather all but guaranteed the Japanese Zeros would remain grounded. There would be no aerial events today. Suddenly, a crack in the cloud revealed a convoy of Japanese ships heading to Bougainville. A major troop movement was underway. It was an easy target. The squadron had shot down 32 zeros in 30 days, with another two dozen probable. Those victories would pale in comparison to the destruction the pilots were about to inflict on this convoy. Jack braced himself in his seat and prepared for the attack. But instead of leading the attack, the skipper ordered the pilots to hold their fire. What is he doing? Jack screamed to himself. Grandpappy never missed a chance to pick a fight, on the ground or in the air. As the barges disappeared from view, Jack continued to stew about the missed opportunity. Near the Vela La Vela airstrip, the skipper ordered those without enough fuel to land and refuel, while the rest would continue on to the base at Munda. Jack was one of seven who landed for fuel. As soon as his aircraft taxied to a stop, Jack hopped out and began recruiting the others to go with him to attack the barges. Everyone agreed the skipper had made a major mistake, but none were brave enough to face his legendary temper. Refueling completed, the seven marines were back in the air. Jack was still pissed. U.S. forces would invade Bougainville in the coming weeks. The Japanese troops on those barges would make a difficult mission that much tougher. Jack knew what he had to do. He made a hard 90-degree turn as the others continued back to base. Jack was on a solo mission to find those ships. As Jack flew, he noticed the weather was much improved. That wasn't a good thing. With no clouds to use for cover, Jack was a dead man if he stumbled upon a group of Zeros. He wasn't backing out, but an already risky decision was becoming more dangerous by the minute. In the distance, the island of Bougainville began to emerge. Closer to him, Jack could see the shipping traffic was still there. From 15,000 feet above the ocean, Jack knew the moment of truth had arrived. Armed with 2,300 rounds of 50 caliber ammo and a steely nerve, Jack began his full-throttle descent. He lined up the first ship. As he squeezed the trigger, Jack saw Japanese troops scramble as his guns chopped up the barge. He pulled out of that attack and lined up a second ship just as the first began to sink. Jack would repeat this three more times, but he was far from done. About 10 miles east, he found Tenoli Harbor and a large staging area for even more barges. Jack roared up the harbor, his guns blazing a trail of destruction. He reached the end of the harbor, circled back over the barges and fired on them a second time. A tugboat had managed to fire a few 20mm rounds at Jack's aircraft. He watched an orange tracer float by him and he figured it was time to hightail it back to base. Jack looked back as he left the harbor and saw multiple vessels on fire. The final total? Four barges sunk 
several more seriously damaged. His solo mission was a spectacular success, at least for the moment. His fuel was good, but he was out of ammo. Jack covered the 200 miles back to base quickly. His plane was in one piece, but as his wheels touched down on the airstrip, he knew he was about to lose a large chunk of his behind. The skipper was there waiting for him and proceeded to deliver a world-class butt-chewing. Never mind that the skipper routinely disobeyed orders. If the roles had been reversed, Grandpappy would have done the exact same thing. The sting of the skipper's rage was muted somewhat by the celebration Jack received from his fellow pilots that evening as he told and retold his adventure. More than one pilot expressed regret for not joining Jack on his solo mission. The next day, a telegram arrived from Admiral William Old Halsey, commander of the South Pacific. That one-man war conducted by Lieutenant Bold in Tonolo Harbor Warm heart. Halsey. Jack might have ticked off his immediate commanding officer, but the admiral in charge of the entire South Pacific loved Jack's gumption and determination. Jack's defiance of the skipper's direct orders inflicted serious damage on Japanese troops and cargo heading to Bougainville. It also saved American lives, because two weeks later, U.S. Marines invaded Bougainville and would eventually take the island by the end of 1943. From Bougainville, U.S. forces were able to cut off sea and air routes vital to the Japanese. Disobeying orders is never a decision to be taken lightly. Sometimes, though, you have to take a chance. Anyway, I bet they didn't teach that story in school. Now, did they? Do you own a local business? Are you trying to get your message out to people who support the local community? Celery City Stories is a great platform to do so. Think about it. The people who listen to this podcast want to feel more connected to their local community. That's why they're listening. So they already support local efforts. And they'd be willing to support yours. They just need to know about it. Send me an email at dan at celerycitystories.com and let's talk. I hope you enjoyed that story. Thanks for listening. Let me fill in a few details about Jack. So his full name is John Franklin Bolt. He was born in South Carolina in 1921, and he moved with his family to Sanford in 1924. He graduated from Sanford High School in 1939, where he was the a class present for both his junior and senior years. Now, the squadron that Jack Bolt first flew with was famously known as the Black Sheep Squadron. If you grew up in the 70s like I did, uh, there was a show uh, called Baba Black Sheep that was based on the Black Sheep Squadron, very, very loosely based on Black Sheep Squadron, but that's where uh, they got the idea for, for the television show. And it was led by Gregory Bowenton, a.k.a. Grandpappy, or Pappy, as he became known in later years. And Grandpappy was a very skilled fighter, but he was a handful, to say the least. 
he uh, he liked his drink. He liked he liked to drink. He liked to fight. Kind of a do as I say, not as I do type of guy. But for the most part, I think the members of his squadron really looked to him and and appreciated the leadership that he delivered in in a very very tough time. Now Jack. His little one-man war against the Japanese Navy, that wasn't the only thing he accomplished. Jack Bolt is legendary in U.S. fighter pilot history. During World War II, he had six confirmed kills, which made him an ace. Then he also served in the Korean War. He had six confirmed kills in Korea, which makes him one of only seven Americans who's a double ace. Jack Bolt is the only Marine Corps double ace. He's the only Marine Corps jet ace because in Korea at that point, they weren't flying prop planes. They were flying jets. And Jack would continue serving in the Navy until 1962. And he did more than just fly. He helped recreate some of the weapon systems that the, that the Navy used on their aircraft. And he was a really, really smart guy. He left the Navy in 1962, comes back to Sanford and works for chasing company for six or seven years And then in his mid to late 40s, he goes to law school at the University of Florida. He'd earned his bachelor degree while he was still in the Navy. So he's in law school while his son is also in law school at UF. They end up forming a handball team, and they become nationally ranked in handball. They They were quite the pair. Now, a law degree usually takes three years to complete. Jack, of course, did it in 27 months. Uh, He was quite the high achiever. And he ended up staying at UF and teaching at the law school. After he taught for two years, he ended up moving to New Smyrna where he practiced real estate law. He also did some legal work for the city and I think the utility department as well. I never had the honor of meeting Jack Bolt. Um, In fact, the first time that I became aware of him uh, was when he died in 2004. I was the editor at the Sanford Herald at the time and Nick Pifoff worked for us. Nick had been a long time newsman for Channel 2 and and a couple of different radio stations. And Nick would write obits for us. So when Jack's obit came in, I, of course, had no idea who it was, but Nick did. And uh, rather than do just a standard obit, he said, I think we need to put this on the front page. And, of course, he was absolutely right. Once Nick told me the stories and I dug into it a little more and, and, and talked to Alicia Clark at the museum and found out, who this man was. I mean, I was just amazed. First of all, I was amazed that I watched as a 10 year old child, the Baba black sheep television show. And it was one of my favorite. And then to live in a community where one of the most famous members of that squadron grew up, I, I was kind of blown away by that. But from all of the stories that I've heard from different people that knew him and, and knew his family, he was just an amazing amazing man and and very humble. Uh, You wouldn't know it to meet him for the first time, but uh, from the stories that I've heard, he just was uh, just a super nice and unassuming guy. You'd never know that he was one of only seven Americans to hold the, hold the uh, honors that he. Once again, thanks for listening. I, I really appreciate it. I'll do an episode once a week where I'll tell a different story about a person, place, or thing connected to Sanford that I think you should know about. So if you want to stay informed, go to my website, CelerySityStories.com. That's where you can sign up for an email to be notified of new stories. You can also find all of my episodes on my website. Once again, that's CelerySityStories.com. If you already listen to podcasts and you have a favorite 
podcast player like Apple Podcasts or Spotify, iHeart, Amazon Music, uh, some of the others. I'm on most of those directories as well. You can find me through your favorite podcast player, but you can always go to my website and find episodes at, once again, CeleryCityStories.com. And I would love to hear from you. If you have questions about the story that I've told or if you've got ideas for stories you think I should tell, let me know. You can go to the website. Again, go to the website. There's a contact form there. You can send me an email. Down in the right-hand corner on my website, there's a little blue microphone icon. Just click on that, and you can leave me a voicemail. I'd love to hear what you have to say, and if your voicemail is exceptionally good, I'll use it on the show. Once again, thanks for listening. I'm Dan Ping, and this has been Celery City Stories. Have a great week.